that when you were leaving a client huh. meeting with two McKinsey people walking down the hall, you'd turn to each other and say, okay, what feedback do you have for me? And welcome to Conversations with Bacon. It is absolutely fantastic to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Um, before we get on, um, a quick note. I've got a new book out, People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business Brand and Teams. Go and check it out. And if you go to johnabacon.com slash peoplepowered, I just launched a brand new People Power Plus package where you can get the book, but you can also get a whole bunch of extra stuff like templates and additional content, Q&A sessions and all, all kinds of good stuff. Maybe a free car. Who knows? We'll see what we can do. Anyway, I'm absolutely thrilled to have on the podcast today, Liz McCabe. How are you doing, Liz? Good, thanks. How are you? Oh, I'm living the dream. So I want to, uh, first of all, as is usual, go through the rap sheet because your rap sheet here is actually quite impressive, <laughs> if I say so. <laughs> so uh, you you went to Stanford, you got your master's, your, ba- your, your bachelor's and your master's in biological sciences there. Um, you then went on to Harvard Business School, did an MBA there. Um, you were a, a, a consultant with uh, McKinsey for many years, uh, just over nine years. Um, uh, you've been a guest lecturer at the at the Wharton School. Uh, you're an advisor and CEO and executive coach to a, num- a, a broad number of people. And you're the founder and managing partner of Stinson Advising. And, you know, I don't want to I don't want to dumb down what you do, but you're effectively an executive coach uh, and you help people to be good leaders. Is that a fair summarization? I do my best. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> so I think a lot of people who are listening to this, uh, and I remember when I, I was first introduced to you through my wife, Erica, um, I, I'm familiar with the, with the notion of coaches and know people who have coaches. Um, but why don't you just walk through what a coach actually does? Like what, is, what are people paying for? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, As Mm. I was just saying to you before we hit record, I've become a rather dedicated listener to your podcast. And I I love the idea that you just bring people on and have interesting conversations. So I'm I'm honored to be here. Well, thank you for being an interesting person. (laughs) (laughs) I I do my best. Um, So it's a great question of what executive coaching is and what executive coaches do. Um, Of course, you know, like anything, it, the answer kind of is, it depends. Uh, One of the things I found in the uh, years that I've been paying attention to this field is that there is a ton of variability between different people in how they define it and certainly in how Mm. they execute their executive coaching. Um, The kind that I do is um, uh, probably a bit more unusual than than what you might typically find. I think coaching at its most fundamental essentially is asking somebody the question of what do you want over and over again and helping them get there. Right. Um, you know, at its, at its most basic, you know, life coaching is that executive coaching is that, uh, you know, sports coaching is that, right. you know, what do right. you want? You want to win this game. Okay. Let's help you get there. Yeah. So executive coaching at its most foundational level is, is just that. Uh, right. but then what makes it executive coaching versus life coaching or any number of other different hmm. kinds of coaching to me is, you know, in, in what ways are you helping the client? Um, and the way I think about it for me is, you know, as you were saying earlier, you know, I started my career in management consulting. I then, you know, took a, took a turn through organizational consulting before 
um, really focusing in on what I'm doing now. So to me, I, I think of it as I show up at a client with kind of my bag of tricks and the things in the bag of tricks are there's some management consulting stuff in there. There's some organizational consulting stuff in there. There's, yeah. you know, a number of years I focused on executive assessment, mostly for C-level executives in private equity firms. And so I, I know a thing or two about interviewing people and making right. hiring decisions. And so to me, it's a mix of starting with the basics of understanding where somebody is currently, um, right. what their strengths are, what their areas for development are, and where they want to go, right. and then pulling whatever I need to pull out of my bag uh, to help them get there. To help them move forward. And yeah. When you're working with your clients, um, I presume you work in a pretty broad variety of industries, right? I do, yeah. Right. and But I'm guessing that many of the needs of your clients are probably fairly consistent. Um, what are the kind of common things that people are typically, when you say to them, like, you know, what's in your mind right now? Uh, mm -hmm. What do they typically share with you? What are the patterns? That's a great question. Um, I think there are two sorts of patterns that I see. One mm. are the the patterns in the more tactical stuff that executives are dealing with and finding difficult. Um, right. You know, hard decisions, hiring um, making really hard decisions on their team and talent, uh, organizational structure decisions, strategic decisions, you know, right. those, those kinds of things are, you know, board management. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about that. Uh, they're kind of tactical patterns in, in those, those yeah. are probably the big buckets I'd put them in, uh, right. managing up, managing down. Uh, but then there are more internal patterns that I see. And I, you know, I feel lucky every single day to do the work that I do. But one of the reasons I feel so incredibly privileged is I get to see through people's eyes. You know, I, I spend my life, you know, either on the phone or in person with a selection of just right. absolutely fascinating, incredible people. And I see through their eyes. And one of the right. things that I'm so lucky to see is the patterns in the the challenges they're having inside their own heads. And everybody thinks that their challenges are uh, special and unique and nobody's as alone as they think they are. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, well, they're I'm, human beings, right? Exactly. And right. so a lot of the patterns I see are in those categories. And they're things like every single person is insecure. The mm. ways that they're insecure are, of course, as different as they are as humans. Um, everybody is wondering, you know, the, the two fundamental questions, am I good enough and am I loved? And right. the words that those questions show up in, in different people's heads, of course, are radically different. But a lot of the sentiments are much more consistent than I think I imagined they would be when I started doing this work with, you know, really- right high-powered executives who certainly don't look insecure on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine some of that as well is, um, and I think this is just the role of status in society more broadly, is that, um, you, like you said, people look at people in those kinds of higher power positions and positions of influence and think that they've got it all figured out. So when n new people get into positions of that kind of uh, influence, they can often feel a little bit out of their depth because you know, they feel like the people who are surrounding them have got everything figured out, whereas that's, that's actually not the case. Um, what would you say is that proportion of self-doubt that plays a role in that? Because I, I, I know a bunch of people, for example, who are executives who, um, who privately uh, manifest massive levels of self-doubt. Um, um, huge, yes. You know, and, and, and feel a great level of burden in terms of making 
you know, the fear of making decisions that, are, you know, people could lose their jobs or in some cases people could lose their lives. Yeah. Uh, I think it's really hard to overstate how much of a role self-doubt plays. Um, there's one client I've uh, been working with about two months and we were on the phone, you know, of course I hold client confidentiality. So in any specific story I tell you, I, I will be changing enough details that the person, if they ever listen to this will think, I think she's talking about me, but I'm not exactly sure. Right. Um, but so- I can tell you listeners that we're talking about Elon Musk. <laughs> so yeah, you know. Of course, of course. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, so this guy has been, he's a first time CEO. He's been in the role a couple of months right. and, um, he said something to me in this first couple of weeks in the CEO job where he basically said, I have looked at CEOs my whole career and thought that they had something figured out that I don't have figured out and mm. that there was some reason that you know I wasn't a top executive yet because there was this thing that I didn't know yet or I hadn't learned yet yeah. or you know, a, a secret missing ingredient. Club. Yeah, right. that I hadn't right. been sworn into or something. And he, he was sitting there looking at me and he said, so I'm, I'm a CEO now. I've been doing it for, this was maybe three weeks in. He said, I... I don't, I don't think there's an ingredient that I'm, that I missed. And I'm sitting there laughing, telling him, no, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's what are you doing? You're managing the board. You're thinking about strategy. You're managing your team. You're, you know, pointing the ship in the right direction. You're, you know, coaching and encouraging your subordinates. You're, you know, keeping an eye on deadlines. You're, you know, checking out the P and L every once in a while, you know, you're doing it. That's it. There's no massive secret. Uh, But like you said, I think our society places a ton of, uh, emphasis on status. And right. so there's, there's sort of, especially here in the middle of Silicon Valley, th- there can be this real um, sense that, uh, you know, CEOs are, are some, you know, they have some magical unicorn power or something, which is just, <laughs> just, just not true. So yeah. to answer your, your question, I think the, the degree of self-doubt in my experience, I've seen actually goes up as the person gets more senior, mm. while at the same time, they're, they're feeling like, they have anyone to talk to about it uh, goes down, right. which actually makes, of course, that makes everyone you know super comfortable. Yeah, so. yeah. And I imagine that when you're working with some of these folks, um, I mean, there's obviously an element of trust building in any, mm-hmm. frankly, any relationship, let alone any consulting client relationship. But for you to be successful, they've got to be vulnerable, right? They've got to open up and say things that they've probably in some cases, maybe not even ever said out loud, right? How do you, particularly with some of these, you know, bullish, you know, masculine kind of Silicon Valley types, Mm -hmm. how do you help that kind of vulnerability manifest and bubble to the surface so you can actually do what you do? Yeah, that's that's a really important piece of this. Um, I think of that as kind of having two two components. I think one part is I start, uh, you know, always is a dangerous word. So I, I'm going to say almost always um, when I'm starting with a new client, I start with some kind of diagnostic and that's hmm. an opportunity for me to get to know them, um, but also for them to build some self-awareness about what they're working on. Um, that's one of the ways right. actually in which I think executive coaching is quite different from, you know, any other kind of coaching is that you're not just working on what the person thinks they need to be better at, but you need to do some real groundwork to make sure that you're spending all of your time and energy in the right places. So we start with a pretty comprehensive diagnostic in, in the work I do. That's normally, um, you know, some kind of, you know, deep dive background interview, maybe some psychometric testing. If the client wants to do that, that's kind of optional. And then a really in-depth live interview based 360. 
Uh, and coming out of that 360, you know, I write a hefty report for the person going into strengths, areas for development, lots of examples, lots of verbatim, you know, extremely anonymized protecting confidentiality quotes from all the people I interviewed for this. So I was going to say that 360, so that's other people that that leader is connected to in their organization, for example, yes. providing confidential feedback on them. So you exactly. can get a more holistic view of everything, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and when you said psychometric tests, what do you mean by that? Like what kind of testing would that look like? Yeah, there's a tool I like to use. It's called Hogan. Um, it's, um, I, I kind of joke and, you know, don't quote me on this because it's, it's, I'm sort of pulling your leg, but it's basically if it's the equivalent of, if you took something like Myers-Briggs, which has right. its place, and then you added, you know, 15 years of actual research, um, <laughs> you know, you would come up with something Boom. like Hogan's. Yeah. Wow. Um, There's some Liz McCabe shade right there. Being <laughs> the yeah. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. You know, I, okay. I, I like, um, I like Myers-Briggs. I actually think it has its place. Um, and yeah. you know, some organizations like my, my alma mater, McKinsey, rely on it heavily. Right. Um, I think it's it's very well used when it's used to start conversations and to right. pose questions. I yes. think it's very poorly used when it's used to answer questions or to end conversations. So yeah. anyway, yeah. with that disclaimer, yeah. yeah. So Hogan's are basically you know a really rigorous alternative, which I I I like using Hogan's. Mm. Um, but yeah, so the the three sixty is. It's a list that executive and I come up with together. Um, for a CEO, a typical list would be a couple board members, um, their direct reports, um, possibly a skip level or two. Uh, and it's important that they don't just pick their fan club, that they pick people that they maybe have more difficult relationships with, yeah. but who are really important to have a good relationship with this person for them to be successful. So, you know, we we pick this group of people. I go off and talk to them all. I then write this big report for them. And going through that diagnostic process with me is a bit of a trust builder on its own. Of course, the I was going to say, yeah, yeah. They're, I mean, they're opening up the gates, right? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so. and, and that's a scary thing to do. And one of the things that, you know, and we can talk about this later if you'd like, but one of the things I think is important with a coaching client is they have to want it. You know, there's no such thing as involuntary coaching. You know, you mm. they, they've got to invite me in, you know, even when I do... Um, coaching work that's sponsored, you know, by a board or by, you know, the the person's employer, if it's, uh, you know, somebody who reports to the CEO, right. uh, they've got to be the one who wants it. Um, because if they're not bought in, and there's not sort of the, the willingness to go there, um, then it's just an enormous waste of everybody's, you know, resources. So right. um, the diagnostic is a big, a big step in trust building. And then what the executives typically see as they go through that process with me, is that, I'm both, um, I don't pull punches, you know, I, I'm, as, as people get more senior, one of the right. things that they, they lose actually is sources of truth. You know, I had a fabulous professor in business school who I absolutely adored, who wrote a chapter in a book for new CEOs. And the chapter he wrote was titled a bad meal and the truth, the two things you will never get again once you become a CEO. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, that so could true. not, right? right? It could not be more true. And so part <laughs> of my job in the diagnostic phase is to show up for my clients and say, look, I'm, I, I would like to think a fairly empathetic person. I'm mm. not going to, you know, drag you over the coals unnecessarily. I'm going to be sensitive, but I'm also going to tell you the truth, no matter what, when it's right. easy and when it's hard. And yeah. that's a core part 
of you know the work that I do. And that builds a lot of trust because then executives know if I'm going to tell yeah. them that they're screwing up, I'm also, when I tell them, hey, good job, they kind of trust me more than they would otherwise. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, in the time that I've known you, we've you know, we've been out to dinner a couple of times and had a few conversations and one of, you're a very easy person to talk to. And, but I've noticed also in your personality and as we've talked about previously, like I thrive on, on direct feedback. Like I don't want to just know what's, what's good. I want to hear what's not good. Mm-hmm. And I like how direct you are, but you deliver it in a way that's, um, that's constructive and that's caring and that's not, you know, condescending or weird or ugly. Um, <laughs> Um, I guess the, the, that what the other question that kind of relates to this is when you are talking to a new potential client, right? And you go through and you evaluate, is this person a good fit for what I do? Mm-hmm. How do you set the expectations in terms of what they're going to get out of this? Because I imagine I've never been either to a coach or to a therapist before, mm-hmm. but I imagine there are, there is a blending of the lines with some of your clients where they may think of this as more like a therapy session where they can basically go and get whatever's on their chest off their chest. And then they can choose to heed your counsel as they see fit. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there may may be other people who are like, you know, I want to get right down to like, what are my blind spots? How do I understand them? What do I focus on? Blah, 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 blah. How do you set those kinds of expectations? Yeah. So in the uh, one of my early conversations with a new client, um, I'll explicitly talk about uh, the way I'll refer to it, it typically as the difference between coaching, consulting, and counseling. And mm, I mm. see them as three things that, that, you know, they butt up against each other. And, you know, occasionally the lines can be blurry, but the way I try to make it very clear, you know, to be, to be very clear, I have an MBA. I am not a psychologist. Um, I don't do counseling and I actually do. I I have referred clients to counseling a few times in the past when I feel like we're getting close to the line. And honestly, it's, it's, I'm just not the best person to help them um, when we get into topics like that. Um, And I think the world of counseling, but you know, that's, that's not my jam. It's Uh, It's different. And so, but the way I describe it is coaching is where are you now? Where do you want to be? And how do we, as a team, help you move in that direction? Hmm. Counseling is, where are you now and why? Um, How did you get here? Why are you the way that you are today? And this is, of course, Uh, a vast oversimplification. But But it's um, deconstructing the the origin story. Yeah, I have a colleague who's a coach who just says, sort of laughs and says as shorthand, I don't do why. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I think is a, a sort of silly way of saying it, but it's right. really right yeah. on the point. Um, yeah. And then consulting is, okay, where do you want to get to? And here, let me help you do that. Right. Um, and so to me with a client, you know, sometimes I'll get on a call and I will spend 56 out of the 60 minutes listening because right. they just went through something really difficult or they just had to fire somebody and it was a person they'd worked with for years and they are all torn up about it and they just need to process. And that is absolutely within the realm of what I will do is sort of hold space for somebody and be there and kind of catch them and say, okay, you know, let's, let's talk about this. Um, so that's absolutely in the realm of coaching, Um, but what's also in the realm of coaching is saying, you know, okay, um, what do you want to do about this situation that you're facing? What are the commitments that you want to make that when I'm at, your, you know, in your office on Tuesday, you want to ask me, you know, you know, Hey, Jono, have you done this thing yet that you said you wanted to do last week? And if not, 
what got in the way? Let's talk about that. Right. You know, if yeah. you did, how did it go? What did you learn? Um, so to me, yeah. that's, that's kind of the essence of coaching right. and the kinds of things that my clients decide that they're going to work on. Cause of course, when we get done with the 360 and the whole diagnostic phase, we spend a bunch of time saying, all right, where are we going to spend our, our time and our efforts, um, you know, working for the next six months to make sure that they really get out of it, what they want to get out of it. Um, but, uh, a lot of it is sort of showing up for them and, and, um, trying to help them move in the directions that they've set as, you know, the goals right. that they want to work on. Yeah. And I, I imagine that putting myself in the shoes of a of some, you know, an executive who's exploring a coach, that one of the potential concerns here could be kind of similar to people who hire PR folks, right? Is I'm paying this money for this service and um what can I expect the results to be? And I know, for example, a lot of people who've hired PR folks and they're like, um, I didn't get what I was expecting because they were expecting, you know, CNN, Fox business coverage or whatever it might be. <laughs> and then, you know, they were featured in Practical Gardener or something. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Right. So um, how have you tuned your business to um, make sure that they feel like they're getting what their expectations are, you know, what, what they're expecting, essentially? Is that that you kind of moderate their expectations on the front end before you sign them? Or do you have like a framework in which you kind of track results, which I can imagine is quite difficult in what you do, but how do you, how do you align those two pieces? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think there are kind of two answers to that. Um, one is the, um, the 360 that I do at the beginning, um, hmm. I have 15 questions, which are basically, you know, how, how would you rate this person on a scale of one to 10 on each of these 15 different dimensions? And they're the, the things I've kind of pulled out is what I see as basically the key dimensions of leadership for most executives. And, you know, we look at them and occasionally we'll tweak them a little bit for somebody's situation, but they're pretty kind of like core foundational stuff. Right. And so I get scores, you know, and, and in the 360 report that I give my clients, they've got, you know, high score or low score, an average score. And depending on how many people I interviewed, if I can cut it out, you know, direct reports think this and peers and superiors think that if I yeah. have enough people to do that while protecting confidentiality, I will. But the point is, it's it's basically an attempt to add some you know quantitative rigor to what can otherwise be an extremely qualitative process. Right. And then one of the things that some clients will do, not not all, but most opt into doing this, where uh, at the end of the six months, or if we work together for longer than six months, then every six months, uh, we'll pulse check the, those questions and actually oh, so you ask, essentially retest and yeah, compare exactly. the data, right? Ah. Um, and so then, you know, we can make some fun graphs, which show, you know, look, you improved by 42% on these dimensions right. that we were focused on. And so there's an element up front of, you know, when, after we finish the diagnostic and we're going through and doing our action planning on, okay, this is what came out of the 360. These are the things you want to focus on saying, hmm. you know what, these are the six of those 15 dimensions that we're going to repulse every three months or every six months or every whatever. Uh, yeah. And so the expectation setting piece becomes a little bit about, you know, um, like anybody who's ever made a new year's resolution knows if you resolve to do 17 things differently, effective January 1st, uh, you're going to go absolutely nowhere and nothing's going to change. <laughs> and so there's some expectation management for me as the coach, especially when I get a, you know, type a over eager, very hungry executive who says, okay, I want to change 17 things at once. And I want to do it all in the next six months where hmm. it's on me to say, 
you know, hey, dude, uh, I love the enthusiasm. Let's channel that. <laughs> and we're going to move the needle on one thing or two things or maybe three things in six right. months, but not 17. So right. we're not going to repulse check all 15 dimensions of that survey. Right. We're going to pulse check, you know, five. And yeah. we're going to see how we're doing. And get some wins. And yeah, then, exactly. Because that's got to build their confidence and, yeah. and so on and so forth. Yeah. So one thing you you touched on, Liz, was kind of this role of listening. Like you said that, you know, you'd, you'd get onto one of these earlier calls and you mainly listen. Mm-hmm. I read this book while Erica and I were on vacation. I forget the name of it, but it was basically, it was about coaching. Um, and one of the things that this guy said in this book was never ask a question with why, always ask the question with what, yep. right? And which was like a very interesting, subtle change, but I understand why he gives that advice because if you say why, it's it's much more pressing and kind of aggressive in some ways yep. than really um, helping to dig deeper into what's going on. People suck at listening, right? <laughs> um, and you're really good at it. What would be the things that you would recommend to people listening to this that they should do most to be better listeners? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and and yes, I, I just to second what you said about the the why. Um, you know, why did you do that? Feels very different from tell me about what you're thinking as you're making right. this decision. Right, or, exactly. How are you thinking about this? Or what's going into your decision making process? It's it's the level of judgment and and kind of judginess that you're implying. Right. Um, so one of the coach training uh, courses that I went through basically challenged people to eliminate the word why from their vocabulary and to start questions, you know, as, as a new coach, if you're sitting there trying to figure out what you're going to say, just start with the words, what, how, or tell me about, and right. fill in something after that word. And you'll be, you know, <laughs> in at least somewhat reasonable in shape. Better shape yeah. um, my husband has, however, pointed out that um, how could you do that does not count. Um, um, what were you thinking also does not count, but for the most part, (laughs) how about um, you sleeping on the couch tonight? Is that how how was that kind of stuck? Not good. Um, (laughs) but for the most part, starting with what, how, or tell me about, or tell me more about, or say more about, or whatever, um, that can help in the, in the kind of two way part of, of listening, the, Mm. After somebody's talked for a while, what do you say to show that you're listening and to continue listening rather than, oh, as you're talking, what it's made me think of is this other thing. And then you go off on your own tangent. So I think the, um, you know, empathetic inquiry or whatever, there are a million different sort of squishy terms out there for what we're talking about, but whatever way it is that somebody goes about basically empathizing with the person in front of them and asking questions that do not imply either advice giving or judgment um, can be really powerful. And advice giving could be, have you thought about trying X? Uh, That's not a question. That's a piece of advice, which might be fine if the client wants you, for example, to go back to my consulting versus counseling versus coaching, you know, rubric. Sometimes, you know, I've been a consultant for most of my career. Sometimes my clients want me to put my consultant hat on and tell them what they think they should do. And so sometimes, uh, have you thought about trying X question is perfectly fine. Um, It's just not a coaching question. It's a consulting question. Right, Um, right. So I think being deliberate about what the person in front of you needs, you know, do they need um, you know, if I, I hope you've seen the, the YouTube clip, um, it's not about the nail. 
And if anybody listening to this has not seen that, Google it. It's hilarious. Um, (laughs) Sometimes the person, whether it's a personal context or a professional context, sometimes they just want to be heard. They need you to hold space for them to go through whatever it is they're going through. And sometimes they really do want advice on how to pull the nail out of their head. And so, you know, figuring out, I think, as the listener, what the person in front of you needs, what could be in best service of them, you know, going into the conversation with the intention of, I want to be whatever this person needs most right now. Right. Right. Um, and then figuring out what that is and trying to do that, I think is, is key. It, yeah. Um, it's, it's so essential. Totally. And I, and I actually just, uh, I just looked at the book that I was referring to. Um, Cause I, I want to make sure that this guy uh, gets the credit for it. Michael Bungay Stania, which is a two pound 50 name. Uh, <laughs> it's called the coaching habit, say less, ask more and change the way you lead forever. And one of the things that, uh, Michael talks about in that book as well is is the first question being something along the lines of like what's on your mind and then let them talk and then to dig deeper and say but what's the real challenge here for you now mm-hmm. I've experimented a little bit with this approach since I read this book and it's amazing how powerful um, it, it works it, you know it, it is because invariably when I say what's on your mind you know things will start to bubble to the surface but when we identify that real challenge. I get information that I could never have gotten another way uh, from that individual. Um, and I just think it's, this is so critical, right, is is being able to listen effectively. But it kind of l- leads to another question, which I think relates to why people suck at listening, is because <clears throat> when they ask a question, you know, if, if they feel like they listen too much, their own insecurity kicks in and they start thinking, I need to be able to demonstrate some value in this meeting, in this call, in whatever mm-hmm. context it is. And I don't think this just applies to coaches and consultants and, and counselors. I think this also applies to anyone who's in a business who sat in a meeting and is like, I need to get my 10 penneth in to make sure that people know that I add value around this place. Mm-hmm. When you've been doing this, how have you wrestled that little demon on your shoulder uh, that's kept you from just immediately jumping to feedback and guidance and input and all that kind of stuff? So there was a, um, a master coach I worked with a number of years ago who helped train me. And one of the things we did that was one of the most valuable parts of any of my training and how to be a coach is um, live supervisions. I had a couple of early clients who knew that I was new to it, and they agreed to let this master coach join our coaching calls in real time. Ah. And listen in. And every once in a while, she would jump in and she would say, Liz, I'm going to pause you there. Why don't you try this question instead? And she would redirect me. And one of the pieces of feedback that she gave me. Just before you go on. Yeah. Was that not super weird? Oh, it was super weird. Oh, yeah. It was totally super weird. That's like your dad being sat there on your first date. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, super weird. Maybe you should hold her hand at this point, (laughs) Jonna. Yeah, exactly. But right. it, it gets, Sorry, anyway, carry it's on. actually really hard to train coaches and to do a good job of it. So yeah, <laughs> right. you go through some kind of like strange, awkward, you know, stages on the way, <laughs> but, um, you know, the, and that's why it's important. I had a couple of, you know, incredibly generous clients at the very beginning who, who that's knew cool. that they were my guinea pigs and I will yeah, be forever awesome. indebted to them. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, but the, uh, the, the funny feedback that she gave me over and over again at the beginning was she would say, Liz, you're working too hard. You're working too hard. And she would tell me over and over, you don't know as the person and forget if you're the coach or not, if you're just, you know, a caring colleague in a work context, sitting across from somebody, you don't know what's going on for them. 
And actually, I would say to that little gremlin who's fussing about whether you're adding value or not, you don't know actually what's going, it's, it's fairly presumptuous to think that you would know everything about what's going on in another person's head and what they right. need and what they're going through and so on. And one of my, um, one of my, uh, <laughs> long, long-term clients who I just loved every minute of working with this guy, he, he is a processor and hmm. he also taught me this working with him taught me this because we would get done with a month of on-site visits with me there with his team and coaching calls and everything. And I would think to myself, you know, I'm not sure what we're doing. I'm not sure what progress I've seen. And then the next time we talk, he would say, you know, Liz, you said this thing six weeks ago, and I've been thinking about it ever since. And here's what I tried. And here's what happened. And all of this stuff unlocked because, Ah. and it sort of, it it taught me a kind of humility of like, I don't know what's going on for another person. Even when I'm their coach and they are confiding all kinds of things in me that nobody else is hearing, I still don't know. And it's right. the best thing that I can do in service of clients is, you know, show up, be absolutely, you know, push them and hold them accountable and deadlines and structures and goals and all these things. But then to also trust that everybody I work with is an incredibly, you know, high powered, hungry, you know, overachiever right. type. They are doing things and going <laughs> places and it is an honor to be along the journey with them. Yeah, and, for sure. And I can't. I can't begin to guess at the ways in which I'm impacting them in the moment. I can see yeah. it typically in retrospect. Um, but that taught me a kind of willingness to kind of sit back and trust the process sounds way too laissez-faire for what it actually looks like in process in, you know, in mm. reality, but there's an element of kind of trusting the process in there. Right. Um, and knowing that if I go in with all the best intentions, it'll work out one way or another. What what is so interesting about this uh, is, uh, it, it, and I'm going to use a terrible comparison here, um, but it's kind of like a different way of getting to the same outcome, right? So I'm just as a comparison, it's a bit like teaching a kid how to read. Like you know, our son, he's learning to read, and one of the things I've discovered with him is that when we're reading together and he's trying to, he's reading out loud, he's trying to figure out words and how to sound them out correctly. If he gets it wrong, it's, it's easy for me to say, no, you say it this way. Whereas I think what you're doing is instead of saying, you say it this way, is saying, why do you approach the word from this p- approach? Like, why don't you sound it out? Or why don't you break it into two halves and, and take it that way? So you're giving them the tools to get to the same outcome, it seems almost. Whereas I think a lot of, especially consultants, when they come into an organization and someone says, hey, I want to accomplish this particular result, the consultant says, okay, here's the five-step plan and A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. And they kind of go through and they give you a prescribed blueprint for what to do. Whereas it sounds like more what you're doing is helping people to ask the right kind of questions and approach their own psychology in the right way so they can uncover those ideas themselves. And then they get that self-satisfaction that they figured it out. Is that a fair way of describing it? It is. And it's um, one of the questions I, you know, whether in as many words or not, I find myself asking clients a lot is in what ways is X serving you? And in what ways is X not serving you? Right. And For example, um, you know, one CEO I worked with um, for quite a while, uh, she had 
certain ways of interacting with her team, which were like everything, you know, no, nothing that I end up talking to my clients about is a hundred percent good or a hundred percent bad. It's just, everything is more complicated than that. And so mm. in some ways, this style was incredibly empowering of her team and generating incredible loyalty and right. making her team feel like they, you know, the sky's the limit. And it was, this was all of their ship together and they were all going to go conquer the world. And in other ways, it was causing a bunch of churn inside the organization uh. because the CEO at some point, even the most empowering consensus oriented CEO in the world needs to put their foot down and say, okay, we're doing option two and we're going to do it by a week from Thursday. Go. Yes, a decision uh, has been made. Exactly. And so, <laughs> you know, and for all of us, uh, you know, our greatest strengths when we overplay them turn into development areas. And so a lot right. of my role there was not saying, hey, you need to be more decisive, although the 360 came back saying, hey, you need to be more decisive. Um, but it was me sort of sitting next to the client, figuratively and literally, looking at the 360 together, looking at what was happening in the company all hands meetings and the board meetings and everything else together and saying, okay, let's look at this and let's talk about what's working about this. What's, how is this serving you? What is the piece of this management approach that is really important for you to keep? Because as the chairman of the board told me in the 360, if you change her style completely and throw the baby out with the bathwater, I will have your head, you know, because it, right. she, she's a phenomenal leader and, you know, is, you know, kicking butt and doing really well and the company's right. thriving and, you know, um, yeah. so this was not a, I don't do turnaround coaching. Clearly, if I'm lucky enough to work with somebody, they're, they're doing <laughs> lots of great stuff already. I mean, forget right. me being involved at all. But you want to optimize, um, right? Not anesthetize exactly. them to right. the, to, <laughs> completely. To, right. Yeah. Right. And to sit next to her and say, okay, and in what environments is this approach not serving you? And what do you want to try in the all hands meeting on Thursday to see how it feels and what happens and how the team responds and, you know, try it out and go from there. Fascinating. One of the things I enjoy when I talk to you, Liz, is that you will say something, just you'll drop a sentence into the ether. Uh, that's just part of what you're saying that is really interesting and I want to unpack, but the problem is if I do this all the time, then we'll spend all the time, we'll basically get through two of your sentences. <laughs> in, in, in that's high praise. Thank you. <laughs> right. But you said just now, and I'm sure that some listeners picked up on this as well. You said something along the lines of when people overplay their greatest strengths, it could be one of the biggest challenges. Mm -hmm. Could you unpack that a little bit more and give us an example of that? Because that's really insightful. All right. I'm using myself as an example of that. Okay. So I'm a huge perfectionist, uh, which in some ways is a strength. It means when I create a client deliverable, there are rarely any typos. If I find a typo, I, you know, beat myself up about it for days. Um, right. But I, you know, and way back in ancient history, when I used to be at McKinsey, my teams, and sorry, if any of them are listening to this, they learned pretty quickly that uh, if the boxes on the PowerPoint page were not aligned, I could not read the text. I just couldn't do it. And so, you know, I'm a huge perfectionist. Wow. Right. I know. Yeah. Which you can see in this example, in some ways is a strength. It means as far as I know, there are no typos on my website. Um, right. But in other ways, it's a huge development area because if I'm, you know, true story, proofreading page 72 of the document at four in the morning, the night before I'm sending it to the board of this company, uh, basically to decide whether to go through an acquisition or not. We'd done a, this right. is a real example, obviously, you know, done an organizational diligence engagement to help the company figure out if they should buy yeah. the target or not written. I wrote 
well, with, with my colleague, you know, we wrote this huge report and I'm literally proofreading page 72 or 73 at four in the morning to make sure that there are single spaces between the sentences and instead of double spaces. I mean, it's inane, right? right? And right. so you can see and that here can be where, debilitating right? exactly. when, the, when you have that level of right. detail. And imagine right. if I had the debrief call with a private equity firm at nine in the morning the next day, and I was up till four in the morning proofreading for no That's reason. Not good. It's just no. dumb. And no. so there, yeah. I think the challenge for me, again, using myself as the example here, is how do I not back to the previous one, throw the baby out with the bathwater mm. and turn myself into a completely, you know, cavalier, um, you know, aw shucks, it'll be fine kind of person. First of all, that's constitutionally impossible for me, but also, right. um, you know, in, <laughs> in some ways I would lose some of the strengths that enable me to, you know, run my own consulting firm and do a halfway decent job of it. Um, but, but not, not be so, um, so wrapped around the axle that it becomes impossible for me to prioritize appropriately. So, right. I mean, that's sort of a silly example, but but kind of not. Um, no, it, it, it tells a story. And if you were to approach that, am I correct in assuming here, I don't put words in your mouth, that you would want to somehow quantify the, the, the before, um, have the ability to quantify the after and, you know, put in place some logical things that you can do to, to rectify that. Once yeah. you've identified it. Yeah, absolutely. How do, like, I know this is a, there's a lot of broad questions here, but how would somebody, if someone's listening to this, how would somebody self-assess themselves for those strengths uh, that they're overplaying? What, what guidance, if I was in a pub <coughs> with you and I was like, Liz, fix me. <laughs> 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 like, what am I overplaying? What, what do you think is a good thing that they can do within the confines of their own head? Oh, I think that's a great question. So I am a huge believer, <laughs> excuse me, I'm a huge believer in feedback, actually. And mm. so that's not within the confines of your own head, but that is within the confines of things that you can do, can do. as yeah. an individual. Right. Um, and there's, it, it, you know, we sometimes get ourselves all snarled up thinking about feedback as this thing that happens in annual review processes. And I, I really don't believe that that's actually the most, the most useful form of feedback or even the most relevant. I think the, the best way that feedback happens is, um, you know, a guy who was a longtime mentor of mine at McKinsey, um, he was the partner on one of my earlier projects when I was, I don't know, 23 years old. And right. we set a norm, which was we were on a very client intensive project. You know, you'd think every project's client intensive, but meaning we right. were at the client, probably in you know six or seven important client meetings a day, and we set the norm as the team that every time after there were more than one McKinsey consultant in a meeting, as we were leaving the meeting, we each owed each other one piece of feedback, and it right. it could be positive feedback, it could be constructive feedback. Either way, each person had to give each other McKinsey person one piece of feedback because we were all doing this so much that we decided to use it as a development opportunity. And it just became normal that when you were leaving a client huh. meeting with two McKinsey people walking down the hall, you'd turn to each other and say, okay, what feedback do you have for me? Oh, well, in that meeting, I noticed that when you asked this question this way, it shut down this one client. But when you asked it this other way, later in the meeting, it totally opened up the conversation. So yeah. maybe do more column B and less a column A next time. Right. Okay, yeah. great. You know, And that yeah. just took 90 seconds. Yeah. To me- Super helpful. Super helpful. And so one of the things that I'll sometimes do with clients is actually train them how to do that with their team. And so without, there's no big announcement of we're going to start this initiative or anything like that, but just to get in the habit. And the first couple of times they try to ask somebody, the person kind of looks at them like a deer in the headlights and says, you know, huh? 
Uh, but after they do this a few times, people start to notice and they start to think about it because they know you're going to ask them. And then they start to come up with ways of giving each other feedback in a way where the stakes are just a lot lower and it's easier to have the kind of open, transparent, ongoing conversation with each other about what's working and not working. And I think that can start to shed light on, you know, hey, Liz, it's great that we know that we don't need a proofer after you've written a report because you proofed it your own self. (laughs) Um, That's great. But when you're fussing at three in the morning, you know, you're not your best self the next day. And we want you to be your best self. So could you please stop? Right. Uh, you know, then I can start to see the pattern and sort of go, ah, yeah, oh, shucks. All right. All that right. Makes sense. I hear you. Yeah. I remember one thing that you said to me once, and I'm going to uh, butcher the the analogy or the reference, uh, but you were saying that sometimes when you're in a meeting with a, with a client, sometimes you need to be more like Gandhi. And then <laughs> sometimes you need to be more like, I forget, Rambo or someone like that. But, Rambo, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and it, that, again, like an interesting little statement around, judging the tenor and the needs of the meeting and the interaction and applying yourself as appropriate. Could you just walk a little bit through that? And then again, like how people who are listening to this can kind of apply that in their own world. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, the, uh, the, (laughs) the Rambo scale, so to speak. Um, (laughs) I, I think it's important to, um, you know, and there's, there's all kinds of um, psychological research, which I am not an expert in on things like mirror neurons and so on that, you know, we are actually quite good at, I mean, how many times have you sat in a meeting and looked across and realized you're sitting the same way the person across from you is sitting and you're not sure who moved first, you know, so we, we are programmed to be sensitized to what the people in front of us are going through and to feel some of it ourselves. Um, I think there is really something to just paying attention, you know, again, going back to the, what does the person in front of you need? Um, and there are, you know, I just, I just kicked off with a new client, uh, a couple of weeks ago and he is very sensitive, not in the sort of new agey touchy feely kind of meaning of the word sensitive, but meaning if, if I delivered the same 360 report to him, that I delivered to a guy I worked with a couple of years ago who you could hit him with a two by four and he'd say, Oh, did you say something? You know, <laughs> this, this guy, he, he would fall out the window. You know, it's yeah. just, it, it, so just I think yeah. it's yeah. just different. There's a kind of calibration of, you know, it's almost like the poke. Can you hear me now? Poke, poke. Mm. Can you hear me now? Kind of as, right. as a coach, you know, when I'm working with somebody initially and I've seen my coaching clients when they're working with new direct reports, go through this same process. Of, okay, well, I gave them feedback, and this is often how the conversation goes. I'll say, you know, they're we get on the phone and they're super frustrated with their CFO because they got this new CFO and the person's really not performing. And they say, Well, I gave him feedback, and I'll say, Okay, and I know that the person I'm talking to is on the more sensitive end of the scale. So I'll say, Okay, tell me what you said. And they'll say, Well, I said something like, Maybe could you just maybe think about trying maybe this one thing, maybe, but it's not a big deal. And I'll say, Okay, what do you think they heard? I'll say, oh, well, I'm sure they heard me. And I, of course, know the CFO and maybe I assessed the CFO if anyway, I do talent assessment for some of my clients. And I know that the guy is in the two by four category. And so they didn't even realize they were receiving feedback, let alone hear it. And so I see these mismatches a lot. And I think they contribute to a lot of tension actually between you know, because it's, it's not like you all have other issues you're trying to deal with together, like, you know, leading the company right. or something. And yeah. so I think right. it, um, I think it can contribute to a lot of, um, 
a lot of tension. And I think the figuring out where on the Rambo scale you are naturally by default Hmm. and then where the other person needs you to be for them to hear you in the way that you want to be heard. Yeah. You know, honestly, I think half the battle at least is just stopping and thinking about that. Yeah. People just paused for 30 seconds before walking in the room and thought, okay, how am I going to come across? And is this person going to hear me, you know, yeah. Too loud, too quiet, just right. You know, <laughs> where do I need to turn the volume gauge? Uh, would go right. a long way. Instead of just blasting from meeting to meeting, as yeah. is so common. Yeah. I, I guess where that get where where this is interesting as well is um this is gonna sound potentially a little bit egotistical, but it's not meant to. I think one of the I have many for me personally, I have many things that um I'm not good at and that I can always improve in. But the one thing that I feel like I've generally have a knack at is reading people. And one of the things that's been very interesting in terms of like reading someone and getting a sense of who they are, what their drivers are. um, And usually my experience of them afterwards pans out with my initial assessment. Now that might be luck (laughs) to be clear. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's interesting, and particularly since I moved to the Bay Area, is this area, and I know there's other parts of the world that are like this, has got so many people who over-index on confidence and being loud and excitable and dynamic as if they feel like that's what they need to get ahead. And there's been a number of times when I've met people, and they're, in many cases, very nice people, but I just think to myself, you're super insecure. And the reason why you're operating in this way is because you feel like you need to you need to prove yourself. Um, and then there's been other people who are very, very quiet and very intelligent and very focused. So you get these different personalities, but certain areas te- do tend to over-index on the loud, brash, arrogance is okay kind of approach. When you're mapping Gandhi versus Rambo, how do you deal with those like super um, you know, confident personalities? Is it that... Because you obviously don't want to knock them down a peg or two if part of their insecurity is the fact that they feel like they need to be that way. But I imagine part of your, what you're doing is helping them to relax so they can trust you and they don't necessarily need to put that veneer on first. Yeah. I think, uh, so first of all, I completely agree with you. Uh, arrogance is insecurity overplayed right. every single time. Aha, there um, we go. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not, I mean, without exception in, in my experience. That mm. said, I have a little bit of a skewed sample. You know, back to my comment earlier, I don't do involuntary coaching. The, right. the biggest outliers on that spectrum, they're not hiring me. And so mm. I'm not seeing the world through their eyes. And ah. so is it possible that, you know, you mentioned Elon Musk earlier. Is it possible that he doesn't fit that paradigm I'm talking about? Sure, it's possible. I also right. don't know. And so I'm, I'm very sensitive, you know, if, when I'm making generalizations to realizing, you know, I, I have a very privileged view into a relatively small number of people's lives and minds, and that there is a whole lot of self-selection and bias because of that selection going on <laughs> in the people that, that I know really well. Um, so with that disclaimer, um, the people that I, who, whose eyes I see through, um, I think they're the question I kind of ask myself when I find myself sitting across the table from, you know, a really big personality, like the ones you're describing is kind of, again, how can I serve this person? And what is it that what's basically what's going on here? Um, and sometimes I've found that some of the, um, 
there's a, there's a client, um, I worked with again, a number of years ago who his 360 came back that he was a terrible listener. And right. the guy is, he's loud. He's also a very, he's very tall. He's physically imposing. Um, he's smarter than anything and a huge expert in his field and very well respected within the very large company in which he was a C-level executive. So he was having this effect on people where he would walk into rooms and shut down conversations without actually intending to. And mm. the thing that was really interesting with that one is I learned, we, we, we spent a bunch of time digging into his intentions of what, what was he trying to do? What was the effect he was trying to have on people? And in his case, it was a little different from the classic, you know, somebody's coming across as really loud and bombastic and arrogant because right. they're really insecure. In his case, he is just, he's one of these people who's hungry for progress in the way that, you know, he jumps out of bed in the morning and sort of says, what haven't we disrupted today? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and he was getting really impatient and in a way insecure that his team wasn't moving fast enough. Mm. And so he was showing up saying, you know, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? We need to move faster. And his team was basically leaning back in their chairs and waiting to be told what to do as a result. Ah, and okay. he kind of put together the pieces and he started, he changed his intention. He started walking into meetings and saying, okay, you know, and this is a guy who was a running a many thousands of person global organization. And so each of the executives on his team around the table are leaders in their own right. And right. he started walking into the room and saying, okay, the question I'm going to ask myself walking into this meeting is not how can I drive more forward progress from my stupid team? It was right. how can I contribute? How can I support them? And he right. started walking into the room and saying, hey, guys, what do you need from me? What are the barriers you're facing that I can go unlock for you? Mm. And then mm. stopping. And his team is looking around like, what just happened? What? <laughs> you know, so, and because it was, so for him, it was, it was about figuring out what was driving the behavior. And there's, there's some people who specialize, you know, specialized communications coaches who are amazing at helping somebody come across in the most polished way and ways that, you know, vastly better than I will ever be at that kind of work. The, the, approach that I tend to take is let's figure out what, what's the intention under all of this, what's going on here. And not from a, you know, deep psychological perspective that I'm not qualified to talk about. Um, right. but from the perspective of just what's this person trying to accomplish? Are they trying to look smart? Well, okay. In front of who, and what's the best way to do that? And if it's a, you know, VC backed CEO, who's coming across as an, you know, arrogant jerk, well, let's, let's have some really honest conversations and do the 360 and come back with the feedback where yeah. the board says, gosh, the guy comes across as an arrogant windbag. And then, <laughs> you know, sit down with him and say, hey, this is how you're coming across. What about this is serving you? And what about right. this is not? And how do you want to be coming across? Let's talk about it. Yeah. No, very interesting. Very interesting. So I know we're we're kind of pulling into the end of this and it's as ever, it's, it's a lot of fun having you uh, just hanging out with you, Liz, and, and having you on the show so people can listen in. But um, I'd like to kind of wrap up with some super pragmatic things that people who are themselves in, not necessarily just in leadership positions, because I think a lot of best practice can apply to a multitude of different places. But for your, the kind of people you work with, people who are CEOs in companies, what would you recommend for, for CEOs who are listening to this? Um, are the things that they sh can focus on to just generally improve their performance and approach? Like this could include the ways in which they work with their team, or it could just be 
how to identify their own blind spots or like what general purpose advice would you give that they can take away that will help them to become better CEOs? Oh gosh. Um, as you've noticed by now, I care about this stuff a lot. And so I, mm. I could talk for three hours about that. Um, but I'm, right. I'm like, all right, how do I not do that? I think um, that was an invitation for you to come back on Liz. Yeah. <laughs> I'm down. <laughs> oh, well, you you know I always love talking to you. But in, in the interest of not boring everybody completely to sleep with a very long-winded answer here, I think I would I would probably wrap up with two things that I would encourage. I, I've never seen a CEO go through this exercise and not get value out of it. So right. those things are um basically building their introspective abilities and their own self-awareness and then right. developing a very clear assessment of what they actually need to do in the next 18 to 24 months to be wildly successful in the eyes of whoever it is that matters. Right. And the way I would do that, you know, I would literally tell them, go write it down. You have, you know, no less than two pages, no more than four and write down the big buckets of things you need to accomplish, like drive revenue growth or completely revamp the management team or set a strategy mm. and align the company around executing on that strategy or come up with a commercial strategy or uh, build and manage a high-performing board or go raise two more rounds of funding or sell the company or whatever. You know, Whatever those things are on your list – of the things yeah. you really need to go accomplish to be successful, write them down on a piece of paper and then go through each one and ask yourself the question, what's hard about that? Back to the question that you were saying earlier of, you know, what's the most challenging piece of that? It's it's almost like the tactical version of that question of, okay, build and manage a high-performing team. That's on every CEO scorecard I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, in your case, for your company um, or your part of the company, because, you know, anybody who's a people manager has that that accountability on their list someplace, you know, what's, right. what's difficult about that? You know, do you have a couple of key vacancies? Do you have a few leaders that, you know, the jury's really out and you've got to make up your mind, you know, what's the situation there and really get clear on it with yourself and then go through this list, you know, your two to four page document that you just wrote and yep. rate yourself of where do you think you are naturally strong falling out of bed in the morning and right. where do you really want to be focusing? Um, one of my, you know, former clients who's really near and dear to my heart. He, in about halfway through our work together, he took a step up from a management position into a very senior C-level job and went from managing a team of about 15 people to managing a global team of about 400. And wow. we did this exercise together where we wrote this document for the role that he'd been in for a while and then looked at where his strengths were relative to the role he'd been in and then where his strengths and gaps, development, development opportunities were for the yeah. next role that he was moving into. And that allowed him to really focus his energy. And, mm, you know, mm. it, it obvious from the way I framed that example, that the way he focused his energy was on how do you lead a 400 person global organization when you haven't done that before? Yeah. He spent a lot of time just paying attention to that. And asking people, how's it going? And figuring out who he could trust, who was really going to give him feedback on what was working and what was not working. And, you know, spoiler alert, he's gone on to become one of the most compelling culture carrier and people leaders across the entire company. And 
I, I just, you know, we, we get lunch quarterly and he tells me all about the wonderful things he's up to. And I just about burst. I'm so proud. That's um, awesome. Yeah. That's so I think, awesome. yeah, I, I just think the figuring out what it is you need to be doing and then understanding your own strengths and areas for development, not from a place of beating yourself up, but yeah. from a place of focusing your energy and attention yeah, yeah. Is, exactly. is huge. I love it. Super pragmatic. Everybody, you've got your homework. <laughs> You better do it. Otherwise, there'll be hell to pay. Um, <laughs> so, hey, Liz, um, uh, where can people find out more about what you do? Um, so the firm I run is called Stinson Advising, um, stinsonadvising.com. Um, I'm also, uh, I'm I'm terrible at being active on social media. Um, Jono, you're one of my role models. You're so good at that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm always, you know, looking at it and thinking, oh, I should really write a blog post about this. And then I'm off to a client and I don't have time. <laughs> so um, my website and LinkedIn are probably the best places to find me. Um, but maybe right. someday I'll have a blog. But in the meantime, yeah. reaching out to me directly is the best way. I don't think anyone has ever said, you know what the world needs more of? Bloggers. <laughs> <laughs> But maybe I'm just getting grumpy in my in my old age, uh, Liz. I you know I, you know how much I admire you and the work that you do, and I really appreciate you coming on. Like, there's so much wrapped up in what we've just talked through. You've got so much um, interesting insight that you can share. So thanks for coming and sharing it uh, with everyone who's listening. And uh, I guess we'll catch up sometime soon. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor to be here. Mm-hmm.